Hey everybody, welcome to Darisha's podcast, Elite Mastery. I created this um, series of podcasts because I felt that um, there's lots of information out there to inspire and motivate individuals like myself and people that I work with uh, throughout the year and all the speeches and talks that I do. So throughout the month and throughout the year, I'll be interviewing people who are experts in their fields and I consider them as masters. Enjoy the show. Hi, Dave. Darius, what a pleasure to be in your wonderful offices. Thank you so much. I haven't seen you since um, we went to the gym yesterday and we had the most enlightening and painful experience that were really like old farts. First of all, I've known you for how long now? 10 years. Is it really 10 years? It's 10 years. My goodness. I, was, uh, I posted a picture of me and Maya, your gorgeous daughter today on Facebook. It. I sent it to you a message. Yeah, Did you beautiful. see it? She looked stunning. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. How times change? Um, no, she still looks stunning now. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about my weight. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's what happens. I mean, the thing is, we said this the other day, and we're, we're, I can't remember where we were. We just we said that we're probably the oldest people in this office or in this room. Where were we? It's some, it's some public space. Is it a hotel? I think it's the planet, right? No, we're not. The majority, the of, majority of people are no. younger than us. People are living longer. We don't have to worry about that. But what is true is that we were in a... I can't remember. We're, we're, I think we're in a hotel lobby or a coffee shop. And we're, we both agreed we're probably the oldest people in the vicinity. But we didn't come across as the oldest. There were people who were younger than us. Have you ever been out them. or met people that you went to school with and they look really old? Um, no, they're all dead. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I don't see people from school because I live in Dubai and I only get to see them on Facebook. But a lot of them, especially my friends that I grew up with in Scotland, um, I find them almost unrecognisable apart from the name. Well, I'm but wondering if they old. think the same when they look at us. Well, not me. I was the only black kid in the entire country at the time, so it wasn't <laughs> difficult to work out. Well, there's a lot more black kids at school now. Than probably there. true. Probably true. Um, so I do find it challenging, especially when the hair colour changes. Since somebody goes grey and a beard goes grey, it's almost like you've got a black and white photo of who the person was. Yeah. And you've got to try and look at certain parts of them, like the eyes and maybe the, the nose. It's like, guess who? You try to work out who the person it's was true. when it's they're so at true. school. So and true. then you, you try and work out, did I like him or did I not like him? Because sometimes you had a, real, you had a really close friend and you, you, when you, you, you split from them, you kind of have memories that you really like them, but maybe you had a fallout, but you just don't remember that. And then they open their mouths back. and you go, I didn't like that person. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you want to run. Even worse when you see ex-girlfriends. Because I you don't know if, you're, if the, it was your girlfriend or was your friend's girlfriend. Do you know what amazes me? Mm. I've just been to England. Obviously, we're based in Dubai. And I've just been to the UK uh, for a week to be with my mum. And I contacted a friend of mine I hadn't seen for 12 years. Right. And we used to spend every weekend together, a guy friend. And I sent him a message, it took him three days after he read it to reply, to say, I'm in France, I'll be back on Monday. I said, great, because I'm going back to Dubai on Wednesday. He said, I'll contact you Monday to organize to see you on Tuesday before you go. He never contacted me. Right. And you know, I was like, did he actually, you know, I met him, I've known him for 25 years. Did it mean much to him, the fact that I hadn't seen him for 12 years? I don't think it's that. I'll tell you what I think it is. When people live in the UK, and it might be true for all expats everywhere, but I can only speak on behalf of the UK, because their world is so tied down to routine, it's really hard to break. Mm -hmm. And so when you go home, nobody will stop doing their routine for you. But when they come out here, it doesn't matter who they are, how resourceful they are, how old they are, they're like little babies lost. 
and you've got to take them here, take them there. They won't go to a mall on their own because they don't know how to come back. I mean, just it's so I, I used to deal with this. I had, to, I had to go back to the UK before I was married and settled down and everything in the early days. I'd go back and see my friends, and I'd book two weeks and I'd drive everywhere to visit them, especially being based in Dubai because I had friends right across the country when I went back home. And you'd stay over, you'd go to shop, you'd go shopping until they'd finish work and you'd catch up with them, go out for a few beers and all the stuff you're doing. But eventually I realised that I was exhausted fitting in my life around them. I hadn't had a holiday. I'd felt like somebody who worked for a logistics company just dropping things off. And people's houses. So I realized I had a much better opportunity to enjoy life by not going home at all, by literally taking my holiday as a holiday. You can go anywhere else in the world and, and have an adventure and see things and meet people. And so I just stopped going home. And it was a conscious thing because I really felt the need to be at home to, to keep my roots. But I think that made a massive change. I think that was a turnaround for me when I realized that I was an expat, not just somebody who had one foot in the UK and one foot somewhere else, but I was always planning to go back. Now, I may still go back, but it's been 25 years of what I think has been a permanent holiday. And for me, that has been a, a really, um, I mean, there's a number of reasons why that came about, but it's been a, a pleasurable experience, like I know I would never have had if I'd stayed back in the UK in, for, in the first place. What I find, uh, I like my quiet time. So what I do is when I go, I always hire a car and go and park outside the house I used to live in. Like a stalker? Uh, yeah. <coughs> then nobody tends to see me and it's daytime. Right. And I remember what it was like when I was 11 and when I went to the UK as a foreign kid. I uh, go to the schools that I went to, what it felt like, the path I walked. And I think it's always good to touch base with your past. What do you think? <coughs> I think so. I agree with you. I went to, I before I left the UK, I, went, I, li I grew up in Scotland, and then I moved to England when I was about 13. And when I was in Scotland, I used to Were you born in Scotland? No, I was born in Leeds. Uh, and then m my dad used to work for a company called ICI. Who yeah, were, uh, AstraZeneca now. But that's that's yeah. right. Uh, and so they had a number of different branches all around the UK, and so we moved with the work. Mm -hmm. So we didn't move much. We moved from, from um, Stockton which is in Teesside in, in sort of like North Yorkshire through to uh, Scotland to Troon and then we moved back to the northeast when I was getting a little bit older uh, and that's why I feel like Middlesbrough is my home but I moved back there when I was about 13 but when I, I used to work with an organisation called the Prince's Trust who look after long-term unemployed youths so ex-offenders, people who've been in prison, ex-druggies, people on their job for a while, um, we'd work with them as part of, the, it wasn't community service, I worked with a lot of social workers at the time, voluntarily, to how, help how people. How old were you? When you, um, when you at that time I was probably in my mid-twenties. Okay, so you weren't a teenager? No, no, not at all, I was very much helping out, and actually I was like, uh, the North East, I was the um, head of uh, PR at the time. Because most Trust. people know you as a hypnotist, a motivational speaker, an MC, but not many people know about that, the fact that you're a very intelligent guy, right? Thank you for that, because <laughs> all the idiots do jobs like that. <laughs> but you're also an author. Yeah, absolutely. How many, how many books have you written? I've written four, five books. I've got Amazing. a fifth one on the way. Amazing. Um, yeah, that's a, another... We'll, we'll finish up a story first. <laughs> no, no, before that, no, I, want to know, I want to know, I want you to tell me when you got into law as well. Because that's right. quite relevant. I'll make a note of this. Have Thank to you. cover law. Yeah, Princess Trust. How old were you? Because I know a lot about you, but I don't know that age, you know, in the 20s and stuff. Yeah. Um, I left the UK 
when I was about 27 after the blind date episode, which is okay. another thing I can talk okay. about in a little while. But the point I want to make about going back to school is when, I, when I, we took our Prince's Trust group, um, the Prince's Trust in those days used to do an event where they'd take, from all the different counties, you'd take 10 young people and we'd take them to a holiday camp and we'd basically teach them life skills for a week. And you get people like Phil Collins and, and, and comedians and Radio 1 DJs pop down and just give their time and say hi. It was really nice. I actually ended up singing on live TV with Phil Collins playing drums for me um, in front of Prince Charles. It was just like surreal. Um, but I went, when I was there, we went back to where my old haunting ground in Scotland was. So I went back to my old school and I, I was in a hired car at the time. I just parked outside the did school. You, did you lose friends when you left? Scotland to go to. Oh yeah, completely. You couldn't stay in contact. There was no Facebook. So no right now, nothing. you don't know any friends from the Scotland time. No, I've made loads through Facebook again. Good. Yeah, all the people I liked, or many of the people I liked. Okay. Some people don't contact, so it's fine. It's, I mean, we're at an age where I think a lot of people don't trust Facebook, and they only just dip their feet into it. Um, friends Reunited was the one that got everyone excited, because they all just like get off with their old girlfriends, marrying them and leaving their families behind. So anyway, just to finish this story off, because it's getting really boring and I can't believe I'm still No, it's not boring. It. I'm interested. I went back to my old school and parked outside my old junior school and just sat there reliving everything. And then I realised, hold on, there's a black guy sat in a car outside a school full of kids. Somebody's going to go, what's sobbing. going on? Sobbing hmm? away. What, what I? Crying, sobbing. Yeah, I was crying. Yeah. And, I was crying, and we don't even have a mobile phone in those days. So it was just into a, you know a couple of coins I could use in a, in a normal phone, just in case I needed to. Um, and so I decided that rather than incur any stalking problems, I'd go into the school. So oh, I, that's I, smart. I got out of the car, walked into. So the pedo school. goes into the school. That's right. Yeah, because then you can't be. Oh, I can't believe you just called me a pedo. It's a shame on you. I will get you back for that later, because uh, my hair looks good. So um, I walked in. And of course, the weird thing is when you go back to your old school, everything's tiny. It feels like Gulliver. Smaller, because isn't it? It, yeah, what was a vast school just mm -hmm. wasn't when you're older at all. And I walked in and I thought, I can't walk around the school. This is really stalkery. I'm going to go into the offices. Did they have any pictures of you on the walls? Everywhere, no. Um, they would have done if I'd stayed in the car. <laughs> Look at this predator. Yeah, my old I'm school, they got, they got a picture of me in the middle of like 300 kids, and they like they all look like post World War Two photographs all black and white and yeah and my I, teachers all fought in the first world the second world war i think a couple of them fought in the first world war wow it shows our age it right? shows our age scary so i walked into the classroom i wouldn't walk into the classroom it'd be really more stalkery i walked yeah. into the, the offices and a teacher turned around and said you're dave crane aren't you I went, yes now bear in mind this is now what 15 years since I left. Mm -hmm. In fact, not even 15 years since I left there. Probably about longer, probably about 17 years since I left that school because I went up to, to, to secondary school. I'm like, yes, how do you know? And they took me through to the teachers that recognized me who were still there. So that teacher wasn't your friend. It was a, another teacher. Oh, it was a teacher, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The teachers remembered okay. me. Because my teachers all died. Up. Did they? Yeah, and the, my youngest teacher was a 60-odd-year-old headmaster. Goodness me. He was well, the only one left. And, I, I, and he was a rugby coach. Right, so that's and probably kept him, him fit. Well, he wasn't fit when I met him, and he was just like dragging himself in the hallway. I was like, time has gone by. That's and, us, bro. That's yeah, us yeah. heading in that direction. Yeah. That's why we're hurting, because we won't let it happen. It felt like that this morning. But what was really strange was that one of the teachers came up to me, a lady called Mrs. Webb, who was the, the secretary, 
and she said, Dave, David, I was, called, I was called at the time, really good to see you. We have to apologize because we decided as a school not to let you be the lead in one of the school plays because you were too good and you'd already had the lead in a previous play. That's why we didn't let you have it. Now, I didn't know. I didn't give a monkey. Yeah, I mean, they even it, sat down didn't talking about, about it and it was a corporate decision. It was a corporate decision that they'd got in their heads at some point and they'd, they'd decided that was it. And she remembered it. She remembered it. It was almost like she'd been holding on to it to, to say, sorry, years later. And then she died. No, she didn't die in front of me, no. no. guilt, no nothing. No. She let it go. She, after that she point, she rolled it, yeah. over. The, the breath came out of her yeah. and she rolled over Happily. with a big smile <laughs> on her face. And that thing that animals do when it all comes out both ends. No, um, she's actually really good. She's a, she, really good friends with a mate of mine. It was his, his mum. I made friends with him again. A guy mm. called Robin Webb, and uh, it's really strange. I recognise him because he looked exactly like he did when he was a kid. But some people that we grew up with, just I guess they never went on Facebook, so you have no idea who they are and, and where they're from. I run a team for the Special Olympics who looked after all the venues just recently in the summer in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And one of my friends from school from the northeast of England has moved to Australia since. And when we got in contact in LinkedIn about a year and a half ago, she said, I'm coming through to Dubai, Abu Dhabi. I'm like, okay, what are you doing? She had Special Olympics. I said, well, great, let's meet. So we met for the first time in over 30 years in Dubai Mall. And it was really fascinating and surreal because when we knew each other before, we were never really close friends, but we were in the same kind of gang. But so did you find out he was still on the same path or you just looked at it and thought, where have you, where have you gone? No, we were actually on the same path, wow. but we, we got on that path because we left um, the UK. She was never a big studier. Now she's got diplomas, degrees, everything. She's a serial studier. She just does it all the time. So she's skinned. No, she's not. She married a, a guy who's done very oh, she well. Married she's semi-retired. Okay. Um, and she just loves her life. And when we talked about mutual friends, with the exception of Paul, who you met, yeah. Tall Paul, um, very few of them, we have any clue as to what they're doing, apart from what shows up on Facebook, and not much more of that. And I find that when I go back to my home, when I went back to my hometown about two years ago, um, I was blessed to meet a couple of friends. It was Christmas, and some made the special effort to catch up. In fact, out of all the friends I had growing up in the northeast of England, four people were able to make it. Now, I'm not blaming them because they've got families no, and stuff, no, you know, it, it just catches up. But it was really surreal because we sat in, a, in, a, in a, an Indian restaurant, ordered curries, had fun. My parents were there as well, and everyone knew them uh, as well. Uh, and then we, we went for a drink afterwards. And the conversation hadn't changed in 30 plus years. So you're all acting really immature and Well, the dynamics were exactly the same. Yeah, but we didn't do that. We're students, so we're smart asses. Yeah. Um, but the personalities were almost identical. I mean, one of the guys has become a really successful computer um, um, technician um, and consultant. One guy is the decision maker for who joins the Liberal, Dem uh, Liberal Democrats in the UK. So he trains them, a bit like me with social speaking. With social, well, so he uh, takes bribes. Um, not remotely, not remotely. He's, the guy got into Cambridge or Oxford, which was it? And he was like, he would get A grades yeah, without that, any That effort. was a joke, by the way. I know, I agree You have to pour cold water over my joke. Well, I know you, but these guys don't. So, you know, if I don't laugh, it's because it was very funny and I'm holding it in when okay. Darish Just don't hold it in for too long. No, because then they'll think they I didn't find it funny. Um, so he chose not to have, he could have been a lawyer, he could have been super successful, he chose something that was an oddball job. And I'm sure there's no real security in it any more than... Well, maybe he didn't choose, else. maybe it's just life circumstances, right? 
you know, he was always a maverick. I could, I could draw a direct line between him at school. He was, I mean, he was the smartest guy in school, without a doubt. He didn't have to study ever, always got top grades without any effort. It was just, it was just a joke fact, he would just do it. But he was in a, in a pop group called Black Vomit, and he had long hair and grew a beard as long as he could. And he, he was just a rebel, but the smartest kid in the school at the same time. It's interesting to see how it pans out, the dynamics. You, you said, you mentioned you were the only black kid at school, right? Yeah, so probably in Scotland. Did you, did you get bullied? Mm. Did, you, did you face... In Scotland I did. When I was in Scotland, I had a really hard time. And it wasn't, it was, it wasn't just being black. This was in the late 70s. It was being English rather than being black. Wow. They could accept the black. They didn't like it, but they hated the fact I was English as well. Um, and... It was a really difficult time where I was getting really bad grades at school. I was one of the youngest in my class as well, um, which meant so that why I was... The, why the bad grades? Bad grades because all my effort was in survival mode. It wasn't about relax, let's get some work done. It's about let's make everyone laugh, everyone gets on with me, therefore I don't have to worry about anything else. Do you think that's, that's affected your future career regarding you got into entertainment? I think it did a lot. I mean, when I was young, my parents, uh, they didn't push me, but they encouraged me to be a singer. Um, and I did lots of things. I, I won a national talent. I came second in a national talent show in Scotland when I was like about seven or, or, or something like that. And it was all adults and stuff. It was like, it was like the equivalent of X Factor. You know, so I, I was already doing that and doing shows and joining shows and performing at theatres and everything. I've been on stage since I was three years old. Um, but when I moved from Scotland to England, which was partly because my dad's job changed, but also because I wasn't doing well at school, and they strategically said, we've got to pull him out of this, because I was not going to do well. I was getting lousy grades. But so much of, of, of the school stuff was about the playground and not about the classroom. It was like a, it was a public, it was a private school that had gone public. So everything was very Hogwartsy. but if you'd allowed all the, the scum in, if you say that, which I don't mean in disrespect, but the, the place it was always in flux. It and wasn't people were standard. lost, right? People were lost in a nice environment, the but yet they were from the ghetto. Yeah, I mean, council estates, I mean, I don't want to say terrible things about it because I don't mean it like that, but it was a posh school where everybody came in. <coughs> and so it was, it was like gangs and fighting and drugs and drink. I remember and crazy in the stuff. 70s, we had the skinheads, the mods, the punks, the... It was crazy. It I, was. I, I came. The music was great, though. The music was great. I came from uh, Iran, yeah. and I was scared at every street corner, every every, every corner of school. I was thinking, "Oh God, there's the skinheads, there's the mods, there's this, this." And it was horrible. I felt it was horrible. I never experienced that. No, it was, but I'm sure that was an equivalent to that now. But maybe through Facebook and so on, it's harder to get away with doing things because you can be seen everywhere. What I found was my parents moved me to to England. And so the class I went into, I was about six months older because the Scottish system, because of the age group, the Scottish system is slightly ahead of the English system. And that's for a couple of different reasons, not least because they get more money per, per capita to spend. So the education system is generally better. When I moved down, down to England, um, I was, because of my age, I became one of the oldest in the year as opposed to one of the youngest. And I was like a wolf among sheep. It was so easy because school-wise, I was already half a year ahead. So I could take the foot off the gas for learning, and I'd get on socially because I was physically slightly bigger. Yeah, and than also, most. you'd been stepping up. Yeah. In Scotland, so when you came, you could relax, and you were still ahead of everyone. Absolutely, and I found that not only 
I was very easily accepted. I got on with everybody. I made some incredible friends who got me through school because I joined middle of secondary school, um, went on to become the chairman of the sixth form. Um, so you and would have been 15? No, no, as chairman, I was 17. 17. So that was after secondary school when you go to the sixth form. Um, and I found it very easy to be there. One of the things that I found fascinating was years later, when I was in my radio career, um, I was interviewing Alison Moyer, you know, the singer. Yeah. And I actually turned up and she went, went all grumpy and didn't do the interview in the end. But what can you do? But the roadies who were setting up the gig, one of them was a guy called Roger Middlecoat, who's an older brother from a lady, a girl called Karen, who I met actually at Rugby Sevens about three years ago, um, who was in my class. And he came up to me and we were chatting. It was nice to see him and all the rest of it. And he said, you know, the kids at school, the rugby team decided to adopt you when you first arrived because they liked you. And they said, whatever happens, make sure he doesn't get picked up. Wow. Did you get picked up? No. And I didn't realize I had guardian angels of the rugby team who'd singled out to protect me and stop anything coming my way. And And it was just me thinking you had a tough childhood like me. No, I had it so easy. It so you got the rugby team. You had it so easy. But it made a well, massive I didn't sell difference. myself to the rugby team. You, you went there. I didn't, I didn't sell myself to anybody. Not the way you do now. But then again, you look good in it. I, I like the scars on your back, but hey, it's friendships. Um, but what I found was making that relationship with them and making that relationship with a town gave me opportunity to do well and personally to grow and develop in a way that I might, I would never have been able to if everything's if things been different. I mean, I mean, to explain, when I was talking to people about going back to have this reunion a couple of years ago, one of my friends was asking me, what's it like, what was it like growing up to be black in, in, in Redcar in the Northeast? And I said I had a really good time and, and, and uh, there were challenges with some people, but I had good protection and most of the, my friends didn't notice. And she said that um, her brother-in-law, who's a black guy, had two half-caste kids, because he married, obviously, to, to a oh, white girl, and one of them ended up killing herself at the age of 13. Because of the prejudice. Because of prejudice and racism and having a really hard time. So I was very lucky, or maybe the times have changed and, and things snapped no, back. Because I'm older than you, and I had serious prejudice. Same age, let's say. Yeah. But I had huge prejudice. My, my teacher, I don't know if you know, used to call me uh, Black Cherry. You told me. Didn't call me by my name. I was I was Black Cherry, and um, when we played rugby, he'll play in the op- opposing team because I was fast. So every time I got the ball, he'll hit me. So he got to the stage that every time I got the ball, as soon as I see him coming, I just throw the ball away. Wow. Yeah, it was it was not good. He was not good, and um, when he will call me names, the other kids will laugh. You know, yeah. so he will instigate other kids to give me. Well, we we don't want to go near politics, but. That's what we're seeing happening across the, the political spectrum at this moment in time. Yeah, so I don't think it's gone away. No, I and think it's still. I think even. it was very naive of us and to be so idealistic to think that in the short, narrow time of one lifespan, you'd see the world holding hands and singing Kumbaya together. It's not going to happen. It's a strange thing to say because when I lived in Iran, I left Iran when I was 13, I always looked up to the UK and the US and I always said, you know, maybe Muhammad Ali was my hero and is my hero. So maybe he'll, he'll become president one day. And I remember people saying in Iran that never ever you'll see a black president. Mm-hmm. And then Obama came and I thought maybe there's change, there's time for change and people are accepting more and 
forgetting whether I admired him when I actually did as a, as a human being, as a man, as a father and a husband. Um, but then now things have gone back again, I feel. I've without going into politics, I don't want to talk about no, politics. No, but I, I agree with you. The, without specifics, we can talk yeah. about the world. Because I, I, I think that the biggest challenge, certainly as a speaker, I tell people who I train never to talk about sex, as in gender, never to talk about race, never to talk about politics, never to talk about religious beliefs. Any of those things are so divisive, you'll end up with somebody getting really angry that you didn't expect. So it's not worth going near that. But I do think that what we're looking at is we are moving forward, but it has to take steps back. You can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. And what we're seeing is a lot of the establishment fighting back to protect itself. But but right do, you think, instance, do you think the establishment's aging? Yeah, it is. But it's also trying to reinvent itself to have the next generation. Because yeah. uh, those aging people are teaching and coaching their kids, right? Yeah. That's, you've, you, I mean, without looking at the, the, the actual nuts and bolts of it, I was wondering how you can have such a huge amount of you know, racism going on in different places. I mean, America specifically, I'm, I'm looking at. But from the point of view, if you've lived in a white town, and you've never had access to anybody else, and you've had generations of just this, and you, get, you hear things on the radio, and you see things on TV, and you've always had it the same way, and there's, there's millions and millions of people in that situation, you will protect your status quo. I mean, you and I were blessed in the fact that we came to uh, Dubai, and I can't even think of, of what color my friends are, because I don't even think about it. I've got I all sorts of nationalities. I think everybody. that you were black, honestly. Yeah. Until we actually discuss it, uh, it doesn't even cross my mind. Absolutely. And I don't know if you think of me as like coloured or. No, I think you're radiant. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I think of you as Darius, and yeah. it's simple. And I think that's a beautiful thing that because we are in Dubai and the rulers of Dubai are fantastic in the way that they've they've made it a melting pot by driving it through business. Um, so you've got best part of almost what two hundred nationalities all getting on with each other because if they don't get on, they have to leave. So you end up with everybody here wanting to get on with each other, and okay, you get factions and groups, but it's it's not it's not violent or nasty. It's just we'll keep ourselves to ourselves, and so the experiment really works. And I wish more people had a t had a chance to experience exactly what it means. I mean, I married a Singaporean chick. All my friends are different color. Most most of the people I know, if they didn't come over here already married, married anybody. Not saying, you know, the first person went past them, but you can't really put your finger on and say, who did they marry? Oh, married a Russian. Oh, married a, a Nigerian. Married a, you know, a, a Lebanese guy. Whatever it is. And you don't notice. The only time it ever comes out is when they're celebrating their, their national holidays um, or religious holidays or when you go around their house to eat and suddenly there's a whole lot of strange food, which, you, I mean, they won't make it so you don't like it. And it's just really You don't colorful. like foreign food. No, I love when you cook. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, I can't get the same buzz out of English food. It's too bland. I've got to put chili sauce all over it and, and mustard and anything just to make it even get flavour. You know, so my tastes have changed incredibly. But I think in the UK that changed as well. I mean, for many years, the number one dish was a um, chicken tikka masala. And then it turned to Thai green chicken curry, I think it was. Um, which shows that even British tastes are evolving to, to, to cater for what people are sharing. So that's a really good thing, I think. I looked at the UK, just come back, and what's fascinating is how the, the cities and towns are changing. The retail 
market's changing completely. There's more and more bars, coffee shops, restaurants. Um, as you know, the retail chains are going bust. There's very little manufacturing. So I noticed there's a massive trend. I think online is helping a lot because bricks and mortar is not doesn't seem to be as successful, but towns are changing more into social scenes. What do you think? Right, I'm not, I'm not experienced that because my old hometown, half it was closed because of the fact it was reliant on the steelworks. And when that closed down, the jobs never got replaced. So a lot of shops end up closing and have been billboarded for many years. So it was, kind of, it was really sad. It was like a bit of a ghost town, unfortunately. Um, but you remember when the town was busy, it was, right? It was thriving. Yes. I've never experienced anything like a Saturday night pub crawl where you start at one end of a town and you work your way through all the bars and you see everybody and okay there's sometimes fights and there's a, there's a but what a colourful zoo of people. But you walked it, right? You walked it. You yeah. had a whole night of entertainment, just walked it from one side Wearing to another. Wearing a t-shirt in yeah. the snow because you didn't care because everyone else did the same kind of thing. But now you can't do anything without having a car or an Uber or a taxi, you can't get to places. Well I don't know because I don't go to bars anymore <laughs> and I just don't go to bars generally, it's just not on my radar, things that I enjoy. What's definitely happened is the change in, in the Amazons and so on has meant that people are, are sitting at home and buying more than ever before. But what you also had a couple of years ago was the bars were closing down because people couldn't afford the extra taxes that were being put onto going to buy a pint. And so everyone was doing the same thing through supermarkets and just having parties in each other's houses rather than bars. So corner bars and, and your, your, your local... Local off-licenses and stuff, they, they went bust, didn't well, they? Well, they went bust because people were using supermarkets more and they couldn't afford it and people weren't going to pubs. So it's interesting to see that the social life is coming back. I mean, one of the things that's a, a real change for this year is it's the first time when shopkeepers were, uh, are now talking to each other who are previously rivals to see how we can get people to join our street because nobody's coming down our street. Before it would be we're jealous because they're going to your shop and not mine, how can we get your customers? Now it's we don't get any customers, what can the experience be like? And, and so that, that, that extension from the internet back into real world is, a, is an interesting challenge I think. I noticed uh, another thing that's changed is that when I was a kid and I went to the corner shop, the old lady knew me. And I knew her, and I knew the husband who sat and watched TV yeah, in the yeah, background yeah. and read the papers and put it back and clean things once in a while. And She's when I went now. over, I, I, 50 years ago, but um, I recall that she used to have my box of Maltesers ready for me. She had a change ready. But now I can go to the local, small local supermarket, and they don't even know you anymore, although I go there every week. Yeah, yeah. That, that personal side of shopping, is, I feel, has disappeared. I think it has, but I think that's the nature of progress. I mean, are you talking about back in the UK or about, talking UK, about here? UK, I've okay. never... Not, not much, this is just progress here. One thing that's changing is, is your relationship with, with money anyway. So you go in with a card and you leave with a card and, and don't even know what's on it half the time. So, sure. so that time when you're counting the change, that little bit of interaction has disappeared. As for you know the relationship with the corner shop and so on, I honestly have no bearing on that. I've been away for such a long time. If I was to make a, a comment or a guess, it would be based on speculation, not from experience. Tell me, uh, I want to go back to the legal lawyer side. Right. How did you get into that? And you pulled out, right? It, yeah. It wasn't for you. So tell me. I was rubbish. That's why. Um, why did you get into it in the first place? It was it was to make my mum and dad shop. To be honest with you. So they wanted you to go into the. Education. There's a thing called second-generation Holocaust syndrome. Okay. Second-generation Holocaust syndrome is a real thing 
that is like an overhanging shadow for people who are the children of Holocaust victims. Now, this is a case of the Second World War where the Jews were persecuted by the Germans and so on, but this is true for any, any Holocaust or any um, mass killing or some terrible thing that refugees have to live from. What happens is the kids who have seen the establishment fall to bits are so ingrained in giving their kids... Who are you kids, referring to? My parents. So your parents both? My dad. My dad was from... Uh, his parents um, came over from Germany during the Second World they War. They were Jewish? Yes. My grandmother was in a just most incredible situation. When the Nazis took her, her dad away, she went every, mo- every day to the, holiday, to, holiday camp, to the concentration camp to visit him until uh, a soldier pointed a gun at her. She was about four and said, you come back here again, I'll shoot you in the face. Which country was this? In Germany. And so um, she stopped going back, obviously, and she was with a number of kids that they smuggled through to the UK. Now she and was on a, on a train. What happened to her father? Oh, he was killed in a concentration camp. Um, he was killed. Your great grandfather. My great grandfather, absolutely. Um, she was on a, a train that they sent from Germany to go to the UK. And when it got stopped at the French border, the Nazis stopped the train and said, "All right, half of it goes back, half of it can go on." She, she was, was on the front. Half. So she went through. Everyone else went back. If not, I wouldn't be here. Not, it was just that twist of fate. And in fact, my name Crane, the original is Crone, because my great, 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 whatever descendant was Dr. Crone, who discovered Crohn's disease. But when they moved from Germany to the UK, they changed the spelling with the umlauts and the O to, uh, uh, to Crane to more make it fit in more. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, my grandfather was from a very, very rich family. And they Germany. were the tailors. All Germany. Yeah, all Germany. They were, they were tailors to the Rothschilds. And they were very well to do. And um, when the war was over and they had, they had family in, in Israel and all around the world, they discovered that there was some money still left. And it worked out to be about $100,000 per descendant. And my dad was offered the money. And he said, no, guys, you keep it. He said, I've lived all my life without this money. I don't want to be involved in any arguments about who gets what. So you just divide it. You have it. I'm doing fine. All the best. So and I respect siblings. that. Is that his siblings? Well, to everybody. Because they've got cousins and all sorts. Is of he still world. in touch with them? Yeah, he is. He's still in touch. My dad's uh, um, in his late 70s. My mum turns 80 very soon, actually. Uh, she looks younger than me. Um, and so they're, they're really smart. My dad, was, my dad retired at 52. Can you imagine that? Just retiring, never working again at 52. By choice. Yes, exactly. Just decided, that's it, I'm done. We've made some smart choices, some good house sales. Straight from ICI. That um, was his last. No, he went into, he became a professor at university, and they offered him early retirement with pension. And when he added that to his ICI pension, he thought, oh, loophole, I can get out now. So he got out, and that adds about the fact he'd been smart with his house choices. Um, he, he had a, a reasonable nest egg to never have to take another job, so he just stopped. So they moved to the West Indies and lived there for a number of years, now they're back in the UK. And because he can't legally work without having to pay tax, him and my mum keep themselves busy by doing amateur dramatics, writing plays and putting on plays with young people and old people, doing them generally for the public, you know, in social centres. Um, and some of it's really cool, I mean, it's really good. So they're really busy, really active, really healthy, active mind, um, and having a great job that keeps them really passionate, but just not a paid job. Isn't it strange that they got into entertainment? It is, because my mum always was a singer. 
My dad, it's really strange that my dad did a, um, a personality test many years ago and he was either going to be an entertainer or a nurse. He wasn't that. He, was, he, he should have been a doctor. He, he, he didn't finish his, his studies because um, my mum was pregnant at the time and he had to get a job to look after the family. Otherwise, he would be Dr. Crane. And this is another thing that's really weird about us. I mean, you've known me for all the time. There's a, there's a nursing side to me. There's a doctor side. There's a caring side. But there's also an entertainment side. The two are almost fighting against each other. That goes all the way back to Dr. Crone. So it's built in genetically for me to have this insight in healing. My father, very similar as well. He could have easily been a doctor. In fact, if anything, he's more like an amateur doctor because he knew medicine inside out because he became a chemist um, as opposed to becoming a, a doctor. Um, and so he was always able to prescribe and always able to, to work out how, how ailments worked, as well as a doctor, all the way through. He's been very smart with that. I mean, I, I didn't inherit his brains, I just got personalities. So you're you admiring him a lot? Yeah. A lot. Yeah. He rocks. So tell me, tell me why the lawyer? Why, why did you go into legal? I went in because one of the things about second generation of Holocaust syndrome, I'll just finish it off, I'm glad mm -hmm. you reminded me, is you need, you feel this overhanging shadow to get your kids into the establishment so this can never happen again. And I guess as a lawyer, you could have, be prominent and fight it, so. As a lawyer, as a doctor, as a profession, you push your kids to have a job that means they won't get pushed out if society yes. turns shitty again. So they're prominent in society and they'll, they'll make sure it doesn't happen. Exactly. So By numbers even. Exactly. So you push your kids into it and, and that's why, you know, get a job like a doctor or a lawyer. And it's very prominent. This is one of the reasons that you see so many uh, Jewish people, certainly in America and many other places, in those professions because it is a real thing, second generation Holocaust syndrome. So I, went into, I wanted to be on radio and TV. And I said this from the very beginning because I was an entertainer. And that, at that point, I'd been entertaining in Scotland, didn't do so much in England. I was in a band at school and we were terrible. Um, but I always wanted to get into radio and TV. And when I went to my school um, careers officer, she said, what would you like to be? I said, I want to work on TV. She looked through her books and said, you can't do that, pick something else. Because there was no job description of getting into that. So I said, I don't want to do anything else. So in the end, I was bullied into choosing law because it made everyone shut up. There was no internet. You couldn't... It was a book. Yeah. It was a careers book with everything in it, which had well, a... It didn't tell you the direction you take. It had reference names, right? It had telephone numbers. If you want to go that, you call this college. That's it. Pretty much. And, and, and even more so, remember in those days, so, I mean, you, you're at the head, we're both actually quite prominent in, in the way that media works, especially doing a podcast here. In the old days, there was no way of getting into being a radio star or being a TV star Absolutely. unless your family was in it and you knew somebody. So there was no roadmap she could have showed me. Now it's different. Now you can create your own stuff in, in your living room, at your office, out on the street. So it's, it's become citizens broadcasting. But in those days, because she couldn't find it, she tried to steer me away. So I said I'd do law, so then I could go to university and just go. I wanted to just go. I didn't care what it was. Get me away from there. Um, so Wait, so get me away from there, what, home? Home, everywhere. Goodness you me. loved it, no? Yeah, but you, you, you're a teenager. Everyone's going away, you know you'll be left behind because the kids I was knocking about with, it was just a thing. We were all going to go to university. And you had no fear? No, not at all. Amazing. So I ended up, I was, a, I, was a, I was the most prominent student because I was a chairman of a sixth form college. But I had so much fun doing that, I didn't do any studies. So I managed to scrape enough qualifications to go to a kind of law school in Essex at some sort of polytechnic type place. That would have made you 18? 
18, yeah. Uh, and I got there and I hated it. I hated everything. Now, you know me, I would have been a good lawyer. I'm very good at arguing my case and smart enough. But the idea of studying on your own to, before you get there, it did me in. And, and what happened was the first year was great. I was studying it. I was doing okay. Not great. I was a bit bored. The next year, everyone's wearing suits and briefcases. Not you. Uh, not me, remotely. So I started knocking about my friends who are computer guys and, and whatever, and I got into working, because I had to redo my first year again, uh, I got a part-time job working in, in Boots the Chemists. Um, and I worked in their record section. And I made friends with the guys who worked there who were part of uh, Chelmsford. They, they just lived there. I locals. didn't know Boots did records. No, but in the old days I they did. I thought W.A. Smiths did. I didn't Everyone did. Boots. Really, Boots? Everyone did, yeah, Boots are big ones. Right. I had chemists, I had photography. Yeah. That was their biggest selling department. More money was made from that department than anything else, just developing holiday snaps and stuff. And so I looked after their music department. Um, I, wasn't, I didn't look after it, I was in there. And I got a full-time job after, um, after Christmas. They offered me a job, which I, I took. Uh, and I stayed there for about two months until I got called into the, the HR manager's office. Did I tell you this story? No. She called me in. And she said, Dave, I need to have a word with you. And okay, I sat down. I was about 19 years old or so. And she said, I believe that you are taking drugs. Really We've had a too number happy. Yes. We had a number of people complaining that every morning you come in and you're really full of beans and everything. So it's quite clear you take drugs before you go into work. I said, of course I don't take drugs. What, what, what are you on about? She said, well, why are you so happy? I said, because I like working here and I like people. And it just a complete blank. And I watched it changing on her face when she realized what a mess she'd made of this. She couldn't. She was straight facing me. Wouldn't let me know. But she was still going to part with you. Well, no, no. She, she, she understood the mistake she had made. Okay. But at the same time, I was so disgusted and repulsed That's by the environment. To even think that way. Right? Yeah, I, I then. You were so innocent and yeah, pure. Yeah, I, I got another job from a friend working in a jean shop and left with immediate effect. Gave whatever minimal notice and left and, and thank goodness I did because oh, really? at that time like anything you, you get drawn into the career thing well maybe one day you could be super manager yeah exactly yes, and all yeah. that other stuff thank goodness that never happened and I remember a quick story I was sitting in the lounge of my house in, in England and I, in the driver I had a Honda NSX um, I had a Lexus and another sports car and my mum was sitting across the lounge with me and she was shaking her head so I said, what's happened, Mum? Why are you upset? She goes, well, if you stuck at Tesco's, you would have been a manager, store manager by now. Isn't that strange? So I said, Mum, but see my cars outside? Because yeah, well, you don't own them, they're leased. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, interesting. Old school thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the generation, I tell you what's really interesting about generation right now. Millennials are the generation that don't want a job. Traditionally, they don't want a job, they don't want to do this, they want to do their own thing, they want experiences, they want life, they want to have fun, and your job's annoying and I'll leave whenever I they want. They want flexibility. They realize they have to some kind of effort to get something back. They don't want to put too much, in my opinion, too much effort. They don't want to be consistent, they want flexibility. They want you to be give and take when they come in, when they have their holidays, in my opinion. That's true. But you know the next generation that's younger than them, they want a job for life. It's gone back full circle. They want a job that's stable. They want something that they can grow in. And I think... What that, makes you say that? Um, I was reading studies on it. I was, I was doing some speaking on it. Okay. Um, and what I find fascinating about it is because 
not for everybody, but for many people, we're going into the gig economy. I mean, you've been in it forever, I've been in it forever, you know, clients all over the place, you work for them for a short amount, short amount of time, and maybe again when they need your services, and that's it, you create your brand, you market yourself, and we're used to that. But more and more people are going to find that is going to be the norm, because jobs are going to be less. You're going to have less people that take you on, pay your visa, pay your medical, pay your pension, they'll just take you on for a six month period, or a three month period, or a project period. And already this is happening. I hosted a, a, an HR conference a couple of uh, years ago, and uh, one of the ladies from a big, well-known company, a pharmaceutical company, showed me an app on a phone, and it looked like Facebook. She said, "That's my. I'm head of HR, director of HR. I've got every single person in the company on this app. I can tell you exactly what they're working on right now. I can hire people. I can fire people. I can move them around. I never need to be in my office." And that is the way that it's going to be in many companies, if not all, but many companies. But it's not right. It's just it's the way still, it's going to be. HR still got to be face to face and feelings and emotions and well, I think that instinct there will still intuitive. be a lot of that. But what's going to happen is people are going to have to become freelancers more than they've ever been before. So you study your stuff and you work for different masters. And maybe you work for several at the same time. Maybe you work from home. Maybe like me, you've got a small team that are based in different countries who help you to supply the products for the one-to-one -one relationship you've got with a client. Do you feel it's still the same in a country like UAE, in Dubai, where people have to have visas and they have to commit to a particular company? Well, it's in the UK. People can work from home for three, four different businesses. They don't have to commit. But here, don't you find it's a bit more difficult for that short-term yeah. contractor, unless they're self-employed, like yourself? Do you yeah. have your own business? And yeah. I, th I think that I get it, first of all. I get exactly why these things are happening. I feel that if you're willing to go into that and you're willing to be owned by somebody, which is effectively what happens with these and everything else, um, then you have got a very safe environment, a very seductive environment to be in. If you can earn the money you can, and you can pay your rent and you can pay for your kids' school fees and all the rest of it, yeah. this is one of the safest places on the planet, bar very few, to be. So that's a trade-off you have with it. Um, I think that you'll see a combination of mass exoduses every summer and new people coming. I think that younger people will find it easy because they don't have a family to look after. And I think that's, that's built in. These guys are smart. In Dubai, UAE, they've got plans going up to 2070. You know, 2020 next year, where we're going, wow, that'll be really shiny. That's nothing. The minute that 2020 is over, we'll say, oh, by the way, 2025 is coming up. Have you seen what we've got plans for? What that? they say is they have uh, plans for the next seven generations. Yeah, 2070. Incredible. And Incredible. so they, they're not stupid because they've spent a fortune bringing the smartest minds from all around the world. And just by osmosis, you and I, we're not here by accident. We've both been relatively successful in, in our time here. And it's because we made a decision the UK wasn't right. There's a number of reasons why the UK wasn't right. And maybe part of it is that, that can't do attitude that you have to deal with back I home. think what I realized, and I, I went to a coffee shop in the UK to write my goals down. And I do that every week. I realign my goals, write them down, time scale, commitments, action plan. And I couldn't. I felt, I was, I was very aware that I couldn't write my goals down because I didn't have the vision. And I was thinking, why, why? Something geography. And I realized it was very claustrophobic. Yes. The roads were small, there was traffic, the homes were small, the rooms were small. Everything was on top of me. Whilst here, I feel this space. You know, I, I live 20 miles, 20 kilometers away. 
and there's not one single traffic light getting home. And there's never, hardly ever any traffic. You mean in Thailand? Here, in, in Dubai. Okay. And I'm talking about, I was in UK, oh, yeah, Bangkok, yeah. in the coffee shop. And here in Dubai, everything's just big and accessible and clean. And you know, you forget that how free you are to free your mind. And I think there's also more, I, mean, I think you're completely right about surroundings, but I also think the fact that there's no politics here at all. You're not allowed to have any. The decisions are being made, like it or not. If you don't like it, there's an airport. And so your conversations are very much about how your life ticks. And so you're allowed to think about where I fit in, what I can do, and how I can make things happen. If you're entrepreneurial, at least. Whereas back home, the bigger picture is, you know, which member of government's going to get in. And Brexit and, and Brexit and everything else. And everyone you talk to about Brexit, it's they smile and they laugh because they've, they've had enough and they just, they're just flabbergasted by the idiocy on all sides of it. And it's a real shocker. And we don't have that here because it's none of our business. And the rulers make great decisions, not all the time, but they fix them. And so they're accountable to them. And by osmosis, they're accountable to us. And I love that. I guess, I guess we're lucky because the rulers are great. That's right? 100% true. Because in history, there have been rulers who've destroyed things and they've been selfish and take things for themselves. But here, the rules are very, very giving. Here um, we've had two generations, maybe, of it. Yes. And that third generation, that looks like it's going to be fine as well. Um, whereas back home, you've got every, what, eight years? You've got a completely new hat being put on top of everything. And I think that because we're on the outside looking into politics elsewhere, you're able to see that that can't really be the system that works. There's people above that who've put it in place so that, to keep the people happy. Yes. You know? And, um, Almost like the Roman times, right? In the Roman times, to keep people happy, they brought entertainment, they brought uh, gladiators, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, they got them occupied, they Shining. kept them busy. Correct. So keep them busy and they don't focus on what really matters. Absolutely. And it's a really smart part of it. I mean, I spend a lot of time with my training and I, I teach people to do public speaking and I work a lot with CEOs, with politicians, with, with, with decision makers. and. A lot of the, the world that we're in now is not just about being accountable to the system, it's about throwing out the system and doing it your own way because people won't call your bluff because if they do, then they've missed their opportunity to catch you. Now this is a real thing that's happening around, around the world right now. I mean, I won't mention the name of the person we've got on the top of our head, the, the, the orange elephant in the room we can't talk about. but. Um, Trump. <laughs> oh, yes. did you say Trump? Okay, I didn't hear that. Um, but what, what it is fascinating to see is how much the media, social media, plays in to the way that politics is working. At the moment, it's entertainment. It's, it's, what, it's, it's gone into reality TV mode. Reality it's TV is taken into over, reality yeah. TV. It's almost like the headlines are written every morning of the chapter of life. It's like the Truman Show has become us. If you don't get something, it's boring. You half expect some kind of a news or irritation or a confrontation. Otherwise, it's boring. I'm reading a fascinating book called uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying at the moment. And it's all about how social media and the news is driven by the blogs. And so what ultimately happens is you can start a rumor at blog level. The blogs that are well opinionated will be then picked up by the higher blogs. And they'll be picked up as feeders for like the Huffington Post and so on. And then they'll create a news story that the CNN and BBC and everybody else, Fox News, will pick up it on. Could be 
none of it's Close true. To the truth. It doesn't yeah. have to be remotely true. It just has to be there because the frequency of posting is so fast. Journalists no longer get the chance to check out their sources because the story is old by the time it happens. So it's more about put it it's out printed, there, let it go, and see what happens. And and because it'll be gone tomorrow. Mm. And because the currency is page views, the more outrageous it is, the better. So if you have to detract, if you have to say sorry and do a detraction, um, it won't get as many views. So don't worry about it. Yeah, we can do it and put it there, but no one's going to read it. And so it's become more and more sensationalist. And one of the things that's more fascinating about it is the scale of human emotion that drives this. We are fascinated by, and we become viral and interested by two things. We're fascinated by things that make us laugh and fascinated by things that make us angry. Things that make us scared keep us quiet. Things that make us sad keep us quiet. Things that make us happy, things that make us argue, quiet. Nobody makes them viral, we just keep ourselves to ourselves. So that's why, right now, sensationalism that freaks people out is what? everywhere. And that's why you've got such a massive growth of alt-right. Because take it back 10 years ago. They you shout, they're the angriest. You just ignore them. Yeah. But now social media, they've all got a voice and you've got a voice back. And suddenly when you're having an argument with somebody that didn't seem to matter before, it's a real proper two-way argument. And that's what's happening. That's what, what is driving a lot of what's happening in politics across the world. So what I train people to do is how to find a way that you can navigate yourself around by using those skill sets. Because it's a different political system. It doesn't matter now what the old system is, or even in many ways the way the law is. The law is always there and, and you hope that it was going to kick in. But if you can make the thing, I mean like, they say that possession is nine tenths of, of law. You know, if you have something in your house, yeah. then it's yours. Yeah. I mean, as in, not, not as in possession of drugs, but supposing I, I, I got some of these car you keys. It. You own it. It's like, right. you know, get, try getting the car back off me. I've got the keys, but it's my car. Yeah, isn't good that, luck with that. that. like lending people money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> the moment the you lend them money, it's theirs. Yeah. And they don't you have, have to, to beg for it back. back, yeah. And so I think that what we're seeing is a really interesting turn of events that drives people's personalities and their brands and their relationships. Plus, we've had many, many years of, of reality TV stoking that fire, that passion in everybody. I remember a survey about 15 years ago. I was watching it on BBC News, and I was still in Dubai. I've been here 25 years. And something like 30% of young people, when they're asked what their job, sh what their career what they wanted would be, they just wanted to be famous celebrities. That's it. They just wanted to be on reality TV and be well-known. Fast. Yeah, and that was it. That's all they wanted. And fast, tomorrow. Not yeah. work it, not put the effort in, not years. They want to do something outrageous, get famous about it. And, and, and monetize and that. fame is money. If they can. Because there's loads of multimillionaires and billionaires today that have zero skills. There's not that many. I think that's a fallacy. I think the, 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 the influences that we've got right now are a side effect of the idea that having lots of followers is the same as having lots of money, which it isn't. Because I think that what happened before was as advertising was breaking down, you could then go to influence marketing. If you've got a big load of people, you've got a huge amount of people following you, then that makes more sense than putting it on the radio. We'll get you to talk about the product. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to buy that product. It just means to pay attention to that influencer. And I think that it's not happening yet, but it's happening in certain ways. Um, a lot of the advertising agencies are starting to realize that maybe it's not going to happen by booking an influencer anymore. 
we're still spending money on it because it's got to be spent and as advertising goes on and it's cost effective and hijacking the way things should be done. What we find is the micro-influencers are more powerful than macro ones Yeah, because they have a more of a close following, they have a closer tribe, they have more connection with their, with their followers than the big multi-million follower Exactly right, exactly right. So the, the likes of your Gary Vaynerchuk and, and your Frank Kern and all the people who used to be internet marketers very, many years ago are now reinventing what influence is. I mean, you, you're an influencer, you've got massive following on Facebook, crazy following. I've got quite a big following on, on, on LinkedIn, I've got what, 42,000 people for me on LinkedIn. And I've, I decided that rather than doing what I used to do, which is create clickbait, create posts that people go, wow, shiny. I mean, they, they comment on it and they like it and they, com they, they share it and I get these massive views, like 10,000 a day, 15,000 a day, sometimes even more. That doesn't monetize because they just go that shiny and then they disappear. I now only talk about public speaking. I now only talk about the we're gonna, business I'm in. We're gonna go to that. And so- I wanna, I wanna go back a little bit. There. Okay, Sorry, go. Because we don't wanna jump into public speaking. That's, I wanna conclude, what time is it? Do we have time? We've got time we've for got anything. Plenty of time. Everyone's listening in the car, and we've got nothing better to do. Great, so great. Um, I got to know you ten years ago, and after about a week, you invited me to a hypnotic show. You were doing hypnosis, right? Yeah. And for an introvert who's very shy, I yeah. got to do crazy stuff on stage. So until then, I didn't believe in hypnosis. Yeah. Okay. And you hypnotized me, and I did crazy. Crazy, crazy stuff. The evidence stuff. is out there. It is on YouTube. YouTube. So tell me about hypnosis. Why Why does it work? Why doesn't it not work for some people? How can it help the masses if possibly? Hypnosis does work. Hypnosis is suggestibility and it's about catching your subconscious mind off guard and putting instructions into it when you're not making decisions about it. So for instance, when you wake up first thing in the morning and you're groggy, then you're very suggestible. You're not really sure about the outside world, just things happen and then it comes into focus and you know where you are. When you're watching TV, when you're listening to music, when you're in the gym, when you're in your, your zone, um, you go into a trance state, it's very normal. And during that time, you could be easily influenced. So for instance- So in a way, your guards are down. Your guards are down and you're in a trance state, you're into a different part of your mind. And it's very effective in a way of controlling people because you can put stuff into people's minds when they're not really discerning yes or no or making real decisions. We're in sort of la-la land. And that's very, it's always been around. This is, hypnosis is not new. It goes back thousands of years to the houses of sleep that were, it was created in ancient Egypt. I've used to use it to put people into trans state and then they could actually perform operations on them because they wouldn't feel anything because they were in la la land and it's easy to put people in. Uh, and in India... How do they do that? Through verbal? Like... Yeah, they talk them into it and they probably have smells and they'd have music. Music's great for putting people into trans state. That's why trans music was so big and that's why you'll see people going to a nightclub who are really stuffed, boring people. Their favourite song comes on and then they dance like loons. And you just go, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's sober, they'll do it because it's a trance state, a different state that's created. And so it happened in ancient Egypt, India picked up on it. And so um, the Shwamis were doing things in, in India, um, very similar. And what is really strange about it is there's a guy called James Estale, who was a missionary, Scottish guy. And he went over to India. This is hundreds of years. No, it's not hundreds. It's about a hundred years ago. Okay. 
he went over to India and he saw what was being done with hypnosis and how it was very good for doing operations and so people wouldn't feel anything. And he came back to the UK with his findings and presented it to the medical board. And at the time, um, they, got, they just discovered ether and, the, and how you can put people, out, knock them out by basically giving them this anesthetic, but it killed people. So like a big guy, you'd kill them. A big, a big guy might be knocked out by a certain amount of ether, um, whereas a small guy like me might be killed because it's just too much. And so a lot of people died as a result of this. And Estelle had a different way of doing it by teaching them people how to go into trance. And so they said to him, go away, find out more, come back. And he said, no, I want to be a missionary. And he went. So he went off. And so as a direct result of that, the pharmaceutical industry across the world has grown out of ether. And we don't have hypnotists on the corner store. Like every shopping mall has got a pharmacy. But what do we mean a hypnotist? And the way that people do things... So you believe it's that powerful? Oh, 100%. But it doesn't, 100%. you can't hypnotise everyone, right? So You can hypnotise everybody. You can. This is the point I was going to make. Okay. It, um, hypnosis is used in advertising. It's used in religions. It's used in sales. It's used in music. It's used in so many things. When you're listening to the radio and then this advert comes on and you kind of ignore it, but the next day you go shopping for a shopping powder you haven't even thought about. Or when you're watching TV in the old days when we used to have adverts, you'd, you'd buy something the next day without even knowing that you'd seen the advert for it. So it's very subliminal because you go into a trance state while watching TV and you can tell you're in a trance state because you can't tell how long it's been since you started yeah, watching. an hour, two hours goes by. Exactly. And so anything that goes in during that time, like for instance, you know, the commercials would go straight into your subconscious mind and they show up when you least expect them. They're embedded the beyond your decision making. Yeah, absolutely. So it's still used everywhere. I mean, it's very effective, um, but it's very rarely called hypnosis. In fact, since I learned NLP, which is a, a, very, um, a very practical form of, of trans state and, and therapy, um, neuroscience has been the new buzz term. So people don't really do NLP anymore, they now call it neuroscience, and it's a different approach to it. I haven't really learned that much about it, I still use the old way and it works very effectively, um, but that's the buzz term, but life coaches, HR people, and everybody decides that a lot of it's the same thing. Hypnosis... What, it, I, what I noticed from your session is yeah. that I was doing, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't, I didn't fear what people thought. Exactly. Exactly. I felt I could have said no, yeah. but I Why didn't care. Like when the music plays and your favorite song comes in and you're in a nightclub and you go, you know what, I might as well go for it. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if people are looking at it, this song's really good. But isn't that, talking about life, isn't that what stops most people, the fear of what other people think? Um, so if you could hypnotize the masses and everybody did what they want to do without the fear of rejection or what people thought of them, they could achieve a lot more. Well, or you could put a religion in their heads, or you can get them to vote for somebody, and they don't even think about all the bad things that are going on because they're conditioned to accept certain it's been things. Going on for thousands. This is thousands and thousands of years. When to, to to break it down, when you put people, when I do a hypnosis show, I do a thing called an, an induction, which is when I sit them down and I talk them into hypnosis. The induction is the same as the Lord's Prayer in Christianity, the call to prayer in Islam. Lots of different religions, You're all of setting them, the mood, they setting put the people scene, into that trance state. So when I'm on the stage and I say to somebody, right, I'm going to clip my fingers, and when I clip my fingers, you're going to stand up and you're going to think that the ceiling's dropping on us, or you're going to speak a foreign language, or, and, and you're going to make it up, you're going to speak Martian. That's not different to what happens normally by somebody standing there, acting as the God, the voice of, of the, the deity, and it goes straight into people's heads that you're speaking directly from 
the, the big power because they have no barrier. It goes straight into their subconscious mind. So the priest in, in Christianity, when he puts them into a trance state, let us pray, or, or, or the Lord's Prayer and, and all this stuff, it puts people into a trance state. And so therefore you can embed them with anything. And that's the way it's worked for years and years and years. And it still will do. And now we're seeing a real overlap with it as it gets embedded into, into um, politics. Because if you think about what we said earlier, about people getting, acting on what makes them angry, and acting on what makes them laugh, the guy, the elephant, the orange elephant in the room does both. He makes them laugh, and he makes them angry, and so he's addictive. He provokes people, doesn't he? Completely. They get Pops, angry about yeah. it. Both sides. But if you try and put your finger on what the other side is saying, it's bland. It might be right, but I, I can't well, remember. It's not it. entertainment. No, it's not entertainment. So it's, just, just one more thing. Going back to hypnosis. One thing that you do at the end of the show, yeah. you get them out of it. You say, right, from now on, you're going to go back, everything's normal. Yeah. Things that you mentioned continue for the rest of people's lives. People blow themselves up for whatever reasons they have, wrong reasons. So, is it about repetition? It's conditioning. Uh -huh. It's conditioning. And can that last forever? It can do, but remember, I mean, the personality that you have was embedded up to the age of seven. After that, it goes through different stages, but you, you know who you are. I mean, you've got kids the same as I have. Maya, my, my lovely eight-year-old, that's the way she's gonna be forever. She might change with fads, but the personality she's got, that's it, done. And you've seen that with your kids as well. So what happens is, if you can catch them early enough with the conditioning, then they've got no resistance because they can't remember a life before it. So if you can get religion to them to a very early age, yeah. so that's all they know, it doesn't matter even if they disagree, they can't, it's an itch you can't scratch, you can't go back and change it because you've always had it. So that's the way the world is. It's the is. foundation of their being. Absolutely. So it's very clever, it's very interesting. And, and for me, I would much prefer for people to make a choice about it when they turn 16, like alcohol and cigarettes, because then you can decide that I want to do it and not have to follow in the footsteps of something that was embedded into you. Now I've. What is true is if you are, if you do believe in a higher power, like, um, like God or, or communism or something like that, you will achieve more, excuse me, more in your life. That faith element is really important. So anybody who becomes a gold medal winner at the Olympics, when they give their speech, I'd like to thank God. I'd like to thank my higher power. Why? Because during their training, when they gave up, they believed somebody is watching over them and they could go to dig, dig deeper to get more power into themselves. And so that's why it's so important to have that faith. But in my opinion, it doesn't matter where, what that faith is, it's part of that conditioning to believe in something bigger than ourselves is what you're able to do. And you and I, we're pretty much neutral on, 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 on that kind of stuff, but we do believe in the ability to use a method to be able to make things happen, which is why we achieve more than most people. So you can break it down to certain things. I believe through sales and marketing is that most people need leaders. I would agree with that. That, again, from what you're saying, is some form of hypnosis, right? Getting yes. people to do, sign the contract, getting people to come to your courses, getting people to listen to our podcasts, isn't that some form of hypnosis or mind control? No, I don't think so. I tell you, I think, I think the, the different levels of what we're talking about. You see, right now, and I get it, I really get it. When you create a system for people, 
you have to stop people doing stupid things like killing each other, stealing from each other, and things that I never thought you'd have to tell people about. Right now, I think you have to tell them again. So this is how, in my opinion, religions happen. Somebody goes, guys, stop this. You're not allowed to steal from people. You're not allowed to kill them. You're not allowed to sleep with their wife. Really? No, you can't. Well, why not? Why can't I do that? Because God will stop you. Oh, oh, okay, in that case. So the system was there. So you need the higher being to give us a law and order. I think if you didn't have that controlling people, why wouldn't people walk into this office and steal the cameras and walk out? I mean, they have to have guns to make sure it didn't happen. Because there's no, there's no reason why. There's no penance. There's nothing. So don't you think that people who use the higher power, be it religion, be it the God, be it Buddha, be it whatever, they become more successful because they can control the masses? I think it's, it's built in. There are a small group of people who know how to use the system. And part of it is they know how to pass it on to generations of systems and so on. So their kids can take over and then their kids can take over. I, I think that's been built in forever. I also think they are born with a certain amount of certainty. They know what they want. I think most people don't know what they want. They're a little bit lost. And then if they meet someone who has, gives them direction and certainty, they'll follow. But why don't they know? Because society's brought them out that way, right? Yeah, of course. You go to school, you're told to shut up, you're told to stop thinking about things. We've got a job lined up for you if you behave and you don't talk yeah. and all the rest of it. Isn't it surprising that people can't get out of it? Get into education. Yeah, get the education system mm. set up to make you stupid. And no. get a job and work for the and rich. Get, exactly, exactly. Pay your and, taxes and die. And I'm not saying that education's wrong, but it's not geared to stop you from... And if you want to change the education system, you've got to get inside the education system, become a prominent member of the education system, and then talk yourself out of a job. That's never going to happen. So much money in it, like hospitals and all the rest of it. And so it's always going to be there until people make a decision on what they're going to do. And I only think you're going to get individuals. And I think as well as getting leaders, you're going to get individuals just doing their own thing and not caring. Not means that, doesn't mean you're horrible. For me, I don't want a job. I never wanted a job. I do do my thing and I get paid for it and I love what I do. Every morning I wake up and I feel fantastic. I think you're going to get more people who are going to be doing that in the future. And that's going to be the job market. So that leads me to my next question. Mm -hmm. Part of what you're doing right now, which is you're an expert in uh, teaching people how to become public speakers, yeah. is to get them to stand out from the crowd, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to speak their mind, get people to have faith in them, believe in them, get, make them more confident. Can you tell me a little bit more Absolutely. about it? Well, it's, it's a very interesting thing that if you stand up and you say something, then you will get a reaction because most people are scared of it. I mean, the idea of public speaking is, is built into us to not want to do public speaking. And it goes back to when we were in tribes um, where you would literally get thrown, can't prove it because there's no documentation on it, but the, the theory is that the only time you talk in public is when you're about to be thrown out of a tribe for stealing or killing somebody so or doing something. Defend you, so you so you you're justify thing, yeah, it. The last thing you, you want is to have to justify why you should stay in the tribe. You better keep your head down and that means that you're doing all right. So nowadays you need to have a brand, you need to be out there, you need to be talking. That's why it's so hard for people to fight against it. And it's also built into us that our way of dealing with danger is that we, fight, we, we have fights, so you fight it automatically without thinking about it, you flight, you run away as fast as you can, or you freeze and hope it goes away. Because people aren't, don't know how to do well, public all speaking. All of them are not natural states. They are, are DNA-based. if you fight, you regret it later. If you say nothing, you have a lump in your throat, right? 
No, but, but you're thinking about it consciously. These are survival DNA built-in responses for a bear that comes into your cave with your family yeah. there without thinking about it. You defend. You, you defend or you fight. If you got your you family run. there, you'd run at a bullet. You wouldn't think about it. Later on, you go, ow, but you wouldn't think about it. You and I have broken up fights. Tons of things. We've got into fights because it was the right thing to do at that time, but we very rarely make a decision based on, let me think about it properly. It kicks in. It kicks in. And that's what we're talking about. And so with public speaking, freeze is what happens. So if that bear comes to the cave and it hasn't noticed you yet, if you don't move, it might not notice you. So, so what you're saying is, is kind of not how I saw it. I thought public speaking is preparing, thinking, but you saying the public speaking or confidence that comes about could be instant. You have to jump and say something in a boardroom or no. ask to say something and you have to say it clearly. What I'm saying is the system that, that we react to that makes people not good at public speaking is built in. The way that you deal with it is learned. Now some people are very good at it, some people are not so good at it. Um, but it also comes down to your upbringing. I mean, you've got two outspoken, lovely kids. You've got lots of outspoken, lovely kids. You're a very busy man. But all your kids... Was. Um, okay, you're very boring now. But all your kids are leaders. They just are. It's built in. But that's because you nurtured them. You got them from a very early age to Thank take responsibility. You. But how do you get somebody who's been conditioned for 40 years, comes to you and says, Hey, Dave, I'm in a prominent position now, yeah. right? And... I'm shit scared. I'm yep. really scared to stand out there and talk. I teach them a number of different techniques because I've been doing it for 50 odd years. I teach them the, the very fast guide to being able to stand in front of everybody and just make it work. So for instance, most people go out there and they wing it. So they start talking and hope after two or three minutes, I'll be okay, I'll settle down and therefore, you know, I'll be able to carry on my speech. But they're really but panicking there's no before. there's purpose to it. There's no... Just well, there's usually a script of some kind or some PowerPoint, but the first bit is they're winging it. I teach them within nine seconds. the crowd notice it. If they're winging it, they don't... Yeah, there's, it's, it's painful. There's energy that they don't Horrible. pick up on. Yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult for a crowd because they're watching somebody die in public. It's difficult for the person because they're worried about what if it all goes wrong. Uh, and it's difficult for anybody who's a sponsor or a supporter because you're wondering... If this does happen, what goes, What I teach people, and again, you're talking about certainty, I teach them all the rules. I teach them in nine seconds to tame a crowd. If you don't tame the crowd, they will tame you. But the crowd actually wants you to be successful. I teach people never to present. So they're rooting for you? They're the rooting crowd. for it to be an experience that they get something out of. They couldn't care less of it if you, if you deliver or don't deliver. So they want value. They want value. They want value. And they, for the time. For but the they, ticket price, for the exactly. But they don't care if you're short or fat or ugly, or they just want their stuff. Deliver my stuff for me, whatever it is. I want you to be successful because then I get something out of it. So, what's the fear of the speaker? Well, the they say it's one of the biggest fears of human beings because right? it's built into us to never have to do it. So nowadays we do have to do it. Nowadays we're not in a little tribe where everyone knows each other and everyone's family and related so we can just roam the, you know, looking for buffaloes. Nowadays, if you want your company to do better than everybody else, you've got to brand it, you've got to have yourself out there in front of people, you've got to be on social media, you've got to write a book, you've got to have people saying, wow, that's the guy, how can we get to work with him? What's the biggest fear? I know that it's stepping outside the comfort zone, but what is that they're thinking that people will laugh, people will criticize, what is it? It's a number of things. When I talk to people about it, it's what if things go wrong? What if I dry up? 
what if people don't appreciate me? What if, uh, and it's not even actually so much about the tech end of it going wrong, but not even at that stage where they're worrying about it. It's just, what if I make a fool of myself? And this gets conditioned into you from school. That school system, that when you put your hand up and ask the real question, Miss, why does XY equal B squared? And they just go, it just does. Stop asking stupid questions. Mm-hmm. And then you, the kids laugh at you. Ha ha, stupid questions, stupid questions. And what happens is the life lesson is I will never stand up and ask a real question again. Because I might look stupid. So for the rest of my life, I will never do it. And you know, as as a leader of of people and running a company with lots of smart people, when you ask a question, you have to dig deep to get a response from people because they don't want to look stupid. And you know they know the answer. But one of the problems is... And it's so frustrating because you wish they'd just come out with the answer straight away and it's welcomed. But the difference is, before they got to work here with you at Be Unique, the challenge is every other company they worked at, it could make their career falter a bit. Yeah, they suffocated. get to look stupid. They were suffocated. Yeah, well, if they put their hand up and they make themselves look stupid, then they'll never get promoted. Because do you remember when he said that thing? Yeah, he's not the guy for us. He's never going to be a leader. But what I do is I show them then how to speak and also how not to give them monkeys about getting it wrong. I get it wrong all the time. You get it wrong all the time. You never admit it, but you do because you ask questions and you just want to clarify. And there's a way of phrasing things. Like, for instance, if I want to say something and it's really controversial and it's going to offend a lot of people, I say, in my opinion, before I say it. Therefore, I protected myself from being outrageous. Do you know you're right? Because earlier in this podcast, when we were talking, you picked up your pen and you started writing things. And you know what I was thinking? Oh, my God, he's going to criticize me afterwards. Really? Yeah. He's going to pick up on things that I'm doing wrong. I'll, I'll do that anyway. But, but here's the thing. I want to do that because I love you. And I know you do the same to me for the same Although reasons. Although I know it's for my good. Yeah. My first initial reaction was, oh my God, he's yeah. going to... And I'm sure people feel the same. Right? But, but maybe, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't about me. Maybe it wasn't about me. No, it wasn't. I'll tell you right. what, what I did. So, but it just shows in my world, I was scared or frightened of being criticized, right? Yeah. And I know whatever you teach me is for my best. Yeah. And that's very alpha, it's very you. Isn't it? It's very you. We could have a whole conversation about yeah. that. When I interview you, I will take you to task. Okay. What I actually did, and it's what I teach people when we do public speaking over on a panel, over in some kind of a Q&A session, bring along a notebook and pen. Because what happens is a conversation, and listening back to this podcast, we go in tangents and we have to then backtrack. And I'm sure there's a number of things we just never went back to. But if you write it down, you can do it. So for instance, if you're on a panel with smart people and the questions are going round, by the time it reaches you, you might have forgotten your answer or something might have said it, or you might just be at a loss, but it's your turn to speak. If you write down three things that you were gonna say, even if the other members of the panel say it, you can say, you know what, everyone's already covered this. I was going to say this, I was going to say that, I was going to say that. So, yeah, I agree with the entire panel. It makes you look smart. It means you've got the reference points in front of you. It means that once you've written it down, if they get this, if you get distracted, when it's your turn, you just look at your pad and your notes are there. Dave, this happened to me. I was in a panel of five people and they asked a pretty simple question. By the time you got around to me, they made every point. Yeah. And I just said this most stupid thing and I said, I agree with everybody. Sure. And that was it. And people looked at me like, because there was no other point I could make. Yeah. So by putting the notes down, repeating what they said, going to the points that you've already written, 
You look smarter. You look smarter. I you felt look totally conscious. stupid. Exactly. But you did the same thing, but I just had a notebook. Yeah. There's little tricks and techniques from experience that make a massive difference. I mean, for, for instance, I was, in a, I was in a, um, on a panel for a, a woman's evening. It was all, all about women empowerment. And I was invited there. I was very happy to be there. But I felt like a complete fish out of water. I mean, I did a keynote presentation, which was fantastic. Then I was on panel with a female presenter, Prestige, who's a really good friend of mine. She was hosting it. And a number of... A, a, a lady who's referred to as Her Excellency, plus two other Prominence very prominent women. people. So when it came to asking the questions to the panel, first question came to me, I answered it as best as I could, then we got these incredibly smart answers that came from everybody else. And I felt like somebody's uncle who just sat down while he was waiting for the bus to arrive because he had nothing better to do. But here's the thing, what you do then... And a one-way ticket. Yeah, and exactly. But you hijack it. You change the game to fit in with your surroundings and your ability. So what I did was, when the question came to me, I said, stop. I said, don't ask me the question. Why are you picking on me? You're always asking me the questions, and they may come with much smarter answers because they've had the time to think about it. So ask them first. Ask them first, and I'll see if I can come up with a decent answer this time. Everybody so we, laughed. Everybody everyone laughed, that. and they did it, and I had time to then justify my position on that. But that comes from experience, and then you use your experience to teach people how to do it. Exactly. Because things like that are gonna happen. Absolutely. One other thing, a couple of other things I wanna discuss with you. When I'm doing public speaking, what I find is as I'm speaking, there's all sorts of thoughts going through my mind. Talking about, is this making sense? Where am I going with this? What am I gonna talk about next? How do you stop that noise going on? Because it, it kind of drowns what I'm saying, if that makes sense. Okay, well, here's what I would there's do. There's chatter, there's a lot of chatter in my head. If you're doing public speaking and that's happening, it's for a number of different reasons. What I tend to do is I tend to make a PowerPoint that has lots of suggestion points for me or make notes that allow me to have bullet points that I can work my way through. Now, what I discovered about one of the things that I love doing is I love, I love to freestyle with no, com- with no set plan and no conversation like we're doing here. And I've realized that what I do is I actually DJ stories. Tell me. When you're a DJ, you play a song to get the dance floor moving. As the dance floor is moving, maybe it's Dancing Cream by ABBA or something, you then think, right, what fits on the back of that that will keep them dancing, that will allow me to move into a slightly different genre of music, maybe half different. But you're taking, them, but you're taking them down a path, right? You, you take, know where they want to go. Well, like, there could be half an hour to closing time, right? So you play different type of music to mellow it down. No, but song by song you do it. Song by song by song. So you're spinning from one disc to the other. So when I'm talking, I go from one story and see where the overlap of that is going to be, what's going to fit in with that, go to that story, and then as that's coming to the end of it... But you're freestyling then, right? But most people like me and your students can't do that. Because it's not... When when I train them, they can. Okay. Because there's a methodology in it, and you can learn it. And one of the key things to it is your ability to think on your feet because you're not scared of the audience in front of you. And that means slowing it down. And it's like talking to friends. Exactly. And that's why I say to people, don't, no more presentations, never give a speech. From now on, you have a conversation with the audience. So then you can slow it down and you can mess it up. I mean, right now, we get on so well and we're in a setting where it's quite formal, the setup. But if we wanted to walk over and have a look out the window and have a chat, we could do that and come back. And because of the nature of our conversation with the, with the audience or the people listening to the podcast, they just go, oh yeah, they decided to do that. That was cool. And so that means if things go wrong, and they often do, presentations crash. 
Microphones don't work. Speakers go off. Alarm bells go off. All sorts of things. If you're giving a presentation or you're giving a speech, it's you versus the audience. It's let's see how good you are. If you're having a conversation with the audience, then... You're all together. Yeah. So therefore, if things go wrong, you can say, you know what, I didn't expect that. Let's change it. Let's do something else. Has anyone got a question for me? You know what I do, don't you? Okay, any questions? Must be something you've always wanted to ask. Mm. And that way you can abandon your presentation, or even better, if, if your laptop's crashed and you've got a great relationship with the audience, does anybody have a Mac? Could you do us a favor? Could you restart this and just have a look at it? I'll just keep talking. I really appreciate What's your name? John. Give John a round of applause. Thank you, John. You're a start. And you carry on talking, and John will say it's ready now. So, oh, thank you, John. Give her another round of applause. So as I was saying... And people love you for it, because you're relaxed and you're having a chat with them. Because the key to it is to be able to work in front of an audience and change your anxiety into energy. So in your courses... Tell me about your courses. How many sessions do you do? It really varies. When I do my group courses, I do three sessions to get people from any kind of fair public speaking to be able to deliver a mini talk. That's it. Three sessions. How many hours? Uh, about four hours in each one. In a group or in, in a group? Yeah, I can do it in one session with a person though, but they don't four, get a chance. Four to hours a session times yeah, three sessions. That's all. That's it. And some people can have had thirty years of conditioning and they yeah, can still. Doesn't matter. I'll break them all. Break them all. Every single one. Why? Because I can teach them the techniques of what's going to work. They learn how to do it properly. And when people say to me, and I often get disbelief, how the hell can you say that you're going to be able to do that in like three sessions? No way. Phone goes down. But people talk all the time. I'm not teaching my martial arts from scratch. They have dialogue. They have conversations. They know the words. They understand how to interpret emotions and how to transform that. They just don't have the stagecraft to make it effective when you're broadcasting to people in front of you. You don't know how to engage an audience. You don't know how to get the audience on your side and to taste test your ongoing conversation to check it's working. Could be with the family, right? If you're a father and you want to get the points across more clearly to your family. Yes, but the stakes are slightly different when you're talking to an audience. Because if you treat them like family, you're not going to have enough energy there to be able to... Unless what about it is treating your tribe. Your family like the audience? Well, you you me? Sometimes, as a, maybe as a father, you're talking to kids and you're thinking, I'm not connecting here. Can be, Does but you have sense? to connect. But here, here's the thing that's missing. This is exactly why um, these, you're asking this question. And it's one of the most important things. And you know this in business. You taught this me, to me in business. The key to engaging any audience is the same as sales. You've got to ask what's in it for them. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you want. want to talk about. Is it going to work for them? If the answer is yes, that's why you do it. If it's not going to work for them, then stop doing it. And that might mean you lose a lot of different stuff that you're going to talk about. And yes, you should. Unless you're Justin Bieber and they want to know what's your favorite M&M color, yeah. then your audience just is asking what's in it for me. And even if it's Justin Bieber, they're asking, what's in it for my fetish of Justin Bieber? How can I find more about him? So it still works. If you go into every audience and ask those questions, and you can actually ask those questions before you start to the audience. How powerful can you be? You can go nonstop. Now, if you want to be a politician, then you make sure that you condition people with these rallies. And then you can do anything you want with them. And you can teach them catchphrases. It's not by accident. It's conditioning. Lock Absolutely. her up. Absolutely. You know, build a wall. Yes, we can. Um, think differently. All these things are, are conditioned to respond. And one of the things that's so fascinating is building your own signature theme. 
And, I, and this is a really advanced part of public speaking that I train people on. It took me a long time. It took me about four or five days of, of studying it to work out what my own signature theme was. Now, the idea of a signature theme is something that's been inherent in you all the way through your life. It's a catchphrase that you have, and it translates to other people, so they then identify it with you. It's actually the decision that you make all the way through when you do things that are really important, and you always have. Now, the process of distilling this catchphrase or this, this signature theme goes into your signature talk. Now, your signature talk is something that you can do for 30 seconds in an elevator or three days without missing a beat. And you can talk from the heart without a script because it's built in, because do it's you, very you. Do you, if I was your pupil, your student, would yep. you write that pitch for me? No. Oh, I'll I write it, but you can I assist couldn't. me and say guide Exactly. Me. Oh. It's yours. It's not mine. I can't put ideas into your head. You have to find it. But the process is like, if you imagine a brewery, like the Guinness Brewery in, in, in Dublin, to get one pint of Guinness out of the end of it, it's got about three different floors where they've got big vats of barley and yeast and sugar and stuff, and it goes in and it's chugging and, and it's got to a certain temperature, then they t test it, and they throw away a load of stuff and add some water, and they've got to go for this huge process to get at the end to pull out one pint. That's what the process is like for being able to get your fit signature talk. Did I tell you what my signature theme is? No. Jump and grow wings on the way down. Interesting. That's me. So you don't land flat on your face. Yeah, calculated risks and then make that gap up by going for it. Wow. That's what I've always done. And so that's my theme. And it took a long time to work it out. And the hardest bit was, as I'm distilling it and writing down and working my way through the system, I'm trying to commercialize it. I'm trying to think, well, what will they buy? Should I say that? But what will... They... You have to let go of all that. You have to say, what is me? What is me that they will identify with? So now, I don't need a script. I can stand up in front of any audience, they can show me a photo of anything I've achieved, and I can do a jump and grow wings on the way down by telling them a story, but then telling them why jump and grow wings on the way down was so significant to the outcome. So that I would love to invite you again and just focus on that subject. Would that be okay? Would yeah, you like to come again? Great. Just one more thing. Um, Only one thing. Let's talk for another 10 years. Oh, That's great. Thing. I think this guy wants to go home. <laughs> he hasn't sat down yet. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next time we'll get you. Oh, you have a chair. You have a chair. Sure. Sit in it. Uh, it's no, all right. Sit, on sit it. down. It's okay. Please enjoy. I'll please keep talking so they can't hear you. Sit on the seat. Listen. Sit down. Perfect. Sit down. Um, thank you, by the way, for staying behind. Talking about motivating and committed staff. Would you like a coffee? Sure. Um, one thing I noticed following well-known speakers, successful speakers, is that they have a pitch, and for the last 15 years, no matter where they are, they say the same thing. They cry the right exact time. Mm -hmm. They tell the joke. They scripted so well. Yeah. And if I was doing it, I'd be thinking, surely maybe in these groups of people who come and see me, they see and heard the same jokes over and over again. Yeah. But it works. So what I'm talking, I'm thinking, every time I see the audience, I've got to create something new. Yeah. But these guys are doing the same thing over and over again. And they have the multi, multi millionaires yeah. and very successful speakers. It's their yeah. signature theme. That's exactly what it is. They have a signature talk. You, you were right the about bits. the chair, right? Yeah, now. it's terrible. She's still, yeah. no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but they have a signature talk, and well, it this works. talk could be and a day, two days. Yeah. But they can do it as a, I mean, Les Brown and, 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 and uh, Tony, no, Malcolm, Tony. yeah, Tony Robbins. Everybody has that talk about how they began. Yes, and yes, how, yes. It works so well. 
as a as a as a um, as a speaker from my point of view, like you, I get bored of my own voice. Yes. I want to have challenges. I want to do stuff differently. I found that the energy that makes my my performance better is because I have no idea what's coming up next. So therefore, I can be relevant with things that happen today, and my performance will be different every time. I want it to be different every time. Not everybody's like you, right? No. So I was looking at this um, Dane uh, in the UK, and. Um, I shared the stage with her about 12 years ago and I listened to her talk last week and she said exactly the same thing as 12 years ago and she cried exactly in the same moment and I'm thinking she's, she, she must have said this hundreds of times right mm -hmm. surely it doesn't have the same emotional impact 500th time or is it acting is it real I don't know it's a combination of them and it thinks it works remember when you give work. a keynote you're like giving a you're, you're a rock concert your keynote speech is the same as a band doing all their so greatest get, hits. To get stuck in. So you, so you perform. And the odds are... And you can't say, I've said these lyrics a thousand times before, so I'll just change it. You yeah, can't. you don't change a song because you want the audience to sing along to it. Um, I don't think that works for comedy. I think comedy has to be fresh. But I think that signature themes and signature talks can be like that. For me... I have had no interest in doing it as the same thing all the time, but I may find that I produce the greatest hits that people would want to hear. So I can change the story slightly to keep it fresh and just have some, for Twist. instance, yeah, have a PowerPoint that's got six different photos of things that happened in my life that are really wow, interesting things, but tell the story differently. I think if that was going, if I were going down that route, it might end up becoming quite similar. And so if I was to dump one of the stories, like for instance, meeting James Brown or opening Planet Hollywood or, or, or you know, the birth of my daughter, any of these kind of stories, then people would say, oh, but tell us about that one. And I think that that's one of the reasons that these guys keep doing it. But also, many of the speakers you're talking about are not keynote speakers, they're pitchmen. And so what they're doing is they're selling their product or their course Back or their the coaching yeah. afterwards. And so it's a carefully quaffered speech. Choreographed. Everything so. is done to the note, to the second, to get that effect of a roller coaster ride. So when they say, buy my stuff. People jump. Exactly. And so that's why I think you'll see the same signature speech. If it's a keynote that they've got to give with none of it, then it might change. But how often is the same audience going to be there? Not very often. I mean, you, you, you took 15 years to see the same girl again. Absolutely. Also, I find that some of the audience have heard it before and they're still as engaged, hearing the fourth time or the fifth time. The, the nodding and go, yeah, I love yes. this one. I can't wait to hear yeah. this. And they brought somebody along, like a wife or a husband who's never heard it before, and they look at them to see it. It's like Game of Thrones or it's like anything where you know what's coming up and you're sitting with somebody just kind of watching them to see what they're going to react to. And they're going to go, ah, I told you. Or if you're watching a movie which has got a twist in it. I guess that people just like to have that kind of voyeurism uh, and experience it. But it's still a growing art, and I think that most influencers can't do it very well. They can't work a live audience. They can work a camera, and they can work on a phone, but they can't do a live audience. Um, I think when they can, if they ever learn, then it's a new game. I think there's something about a live audience and the mix, and the fear of getting it wrong, that is a real challenge, and I find that really exciting. I mean, you know me, I mean, Rugby Sevens is like, what, 45,000 people in front of me, me and a microphone for three days. And you hold them. Just do it. You just do it. But there, it's not by accident. It's done because of all the things I've had to do, go through. Do you to get nervous? Do you get a, no, never. Just get a microphone and go out there and do it. Isn't it good to get nervous? You learn to channel it. 
you don't get nervous what you do is you get energy and you get um, excited and you get adrenaline all nerves is is, is adrenaline anyway yes. you either let it hijack you because it empties your brain or control it or you control it yeah. and also I have enough faith that with no script I can ad lib I can make it go. And I've got enough catchphrases to work an audience or whatever. It's all about response patterns. It's all about feedback loops. So if, you've got the, if you know how to run a decent feedback loop with any audience, you can get a response back that you can play with and you can grow it and do well. So for instance, an amateur might ask an audience, um, how many people had a problem parking today? And people's hands go up and they say, so what happened to you? And suddenly the whole conversation goes left wing or, or the different direction. Um, whereas somebody who knows what they're doing might say, did anybody else have a problem parking this morning? Nightmare, wasn't it? Well, at least we're here, so we can carry on. So you've made the audience feel involved in a conversation, but you didn't let them join in. And then get stuck in that. Absolutely, you didn't get sidetracked, mm -hmm. but the audience feels like you're sharing it with them because you're asking them a rhetorical question and you're getting the feedback. So lots of, lots of things like that go into building the science of being able to work an audience. Now lots of people have different ways of doing it. I'm sure my methodology is different to, to almost everybody else's. Um, but I've seen a lot of people do it really badly. And for instance, the industry is full of people who used to say, do training sessions for a bank who now become experts in public speaking. Well, you know, unless you've done cabaret, unless you've worked massive audiences, unless you work people who are hostile or drunk, then I don't think you have got the range. Give me the top three reasons why people don't embrace public speaking in your courses um, straight away. I think it's because it goes much deeper. They don't want to stand out in life, period. I think that they don't want to be a brand. They don't want to be a leader. Okay. So know? they're lost. Well, they're not necessarily lost. It's just not being on their radar. If you've not taught people no, that no, you could no, run no, a company. What I'm saying is they've come to your course. Oh, right. they're committed, course. and there's three reasons. Give me three reasons why people wouldn't be able to become speakers at the end. Yeah, or they, they've had challenges. I know that you're very successful in what you do. I'm talking about. Give me, like, for instance, I don't sell to everybody I pitch, right? Right. So, but I can tell you the three most common things. Like, I can't make a decision. Right. It's going to take time. Yeah. I can't afford it. These are often the top three. What are your top three? So this is for people who've already got on the course. They've come on the people, course, and okay. you're challenged teaching them or they've got okay. obstacles. The challenges yeah. are, I don't have a problem with people generally learning to speak. I do have a problem with people applying themselves and doing the homework. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're busy or Find because excuses. they don't prioritize it or because they've already got self-defeating programs built in that hijack the progression of getting forward. Some people you meet are really smart and really good at it. But if but I they, reasons not to. They always hijack their own success. So they pay, they attend, but they don't do their homework. But they still are better at doing public speaking. They can still do it regardless. What I teach people is how to get to the highest level, to get, become brands and become leaders in industry. They might not want to do that. They might just be happy being middle management and you know getting a salary and all that. Stand up in a networking event and do their one Exactly, minute. and there's no, there's nothing that's wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I believe that if even if you have that, you can earn three hundred percent more in your lifetime just by being able to stand up and be counted. So when, when in a boardroom like this where people are chatting, you could put your hand up and say, actually, I think it's this. 
And we go, you know what, you're right, very good. And so you get promoted, even to supervisor. And the minute you go to supervisor, you'll get an extra 20% in your pay packet. And over a period of time, if you never get promoted again, that's 20% more that you'd never had before. But that tends to be that you get bigger and bigger. And plus also, the more you can speak, the more your colleagues see you as a leader. So you get pushed into that position where you're speaking on behalf of everybody. Management notice you because you're the only person that represents. And so you find yourself in that position. Even if you're not planning on becoming a professional speaker, the ability to have social interaction more effectively, confidence, confidence and being able to get on with people. It also, there's an, an amazing thing about the fear of public speaking also is a fear of, of posting online or commenting online. Very, very similar things. They're just scared that people will read it and judge them. So they don't post. And that's a, something that affects many people. I wonder if you can help me. About um, three weeks ago, I got some really nasty messages from a friend of mine of 42, three years ago when I was in Iran. He's gone to California and I hadn't, I found him on Facebook. We friend, befriended each other on Facebook and out the blue, he starts sending me abusive messages like you're showing off, uh, so you're too arrogant, uh, you this, you that. I said, well, you don't know me and you know, I'm an inspirational speaker. So I need to tell people that I had nothing few years ago now I've got something right yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not shoving my lifestyle down people's throats and I started justifying myself mm -hmm. and his abuse got worse and worse and worse of course. and at first he started actually abusing me in my wall so everybody could see and then when I started taking him off he started getting even more abusive but it really hurt it really hurt and I said you and I are not friends anymore goodbye yeah yes and he got really abusive to the yeah. point of vulgar and uh, I blocked him but even today it hurts yeah. that a guy I don't know can be so presumptuous and so wrong about me, right? Yeah, Haters and Trolls, which is, a, a, I mean, I, I, I do these music videos and there's one recently called Haters and Trolls about that whole subject, about the way that people um, from a remote, it's, it's, it's a, just a symptom of being a heckler on social media. So from a distance you can say things because there's no repercussions, yeah. you're bored, and you can be a troll and really upset people without anything. I felt, I even showed it to friends and family and, and they got upset because they're saying what he's saying is totally untrue. And the exact words you said, oh, he was jealous. I said, but what is it to be jealous about, right? It's not the point, it's not the point. He's hijacking uh, your stream of people to, remember, at the heart of it, what's in it for me? He's looking at your stuff and it, your success is for him a paling of his own success because you came from the same roots and he's not achieved anything. So that's why he's doing and I it. I was dying to say, let's be friends. No. We don't have to be like, but he just did not want to. So why throw away? He was my first friend in life, you know, yeah. and why throw away all that through one wrong observation? I studied this. I'd, when I first started making posts on LinkedIn, every now and again when I make a, a really sort of like deep thing about really really heavy stuff, um, like building a wall, I would get nasty trolls saying stuff. And I, I googled it and Gary Vaynerchuk came up and he said I love people who are arguing with me because then I can have a really good... He's a very abrasive character, Gary yeah, Vaynerchuk. He, he, loves, to, he loves to rag and, people yeah, exactly. and so on. And I'm not that guy. I mean, I found what happened was I'd, I'd comment and I'd send them love and I'd try and give them attention. But what I did was if I got 50 comments and one nasty one, did, I'd spend did, all day yeah. thinking and about it, I remember you saying it and it used to upset you. And I ignored all the lovely people mm -hmm. who'd taken the time to say nice stuff. So I decided to just steer away from Gary Vaynerchuk stuff. So what I did was, was I blocked him, 
But then what happened was people were saying to me, I can't believe you're still letting this guy rant on. So they got well, what they happens support is you, you block, they started ganging up against the... But yeah, but the problem is, if you block them, you can't see their comments, but everyone else can. You have to delete the comments and mm -hmm. then block them. And I now do this with immediate effect. I question them with a comment to see if maybe I've misinterpreted where they're coming from. And if they're being unreasonable, yeah. it's bye-bye. Exactly. Within seconds, yeah. I just get rid of them. And I've had people say to me, that's not the way to do it. Oh, kiss my ass. I've got better things to do. I want people around me who want to buy Yeah, in. the energy that you have is exactly. definitely different. And Why spend a second of your time justifying anything to people who... To anybody who doesn't want it. Unreasonable, wrong, yeah. You get it for free. If you don't want it, you don't appreciate it. Go and stare at Netflix or, or troll somebody else. I only want the people who are interested. They don't have to agree with me. I love it when they don't agree with me. But don't disrespect it. And I won't disrespect your ability to do this. It's funny. I said the same thing to a client this morning. I said, they sell tickets to seminars. And I said, you actually don't want that person coming to your seminar. Because they'll heckle and, they, and jeer and they'll walk halfway through asking for the money back. So delete, block, move on. Next. 100%. It's very important that you go down that route because now what we're doing, you mentioned about micro influencers and macro influencers. The more you can have a small, tight knit group of people who buy into you, the more powerful, the more you can monetize it. In LinkedIn, I've got a closed group of which I've got two and a half thousand decision makers in it. On WhatsApp, I've got a number of little groups that I do. Um, and I'd prefer to have that group of people who have an interest in public than speaking. 100,000 on the Than 100,000 that people who need me to show a cat climbing up a tree and then I get, a, you know, a thousand likes every day. Forget it. That's what, what, how do you monetize that? How do you create something with that? And I think that you'll, you'll always get those people who just like it and it's a thing. I mean, it's not by accident that Facebook created these likes and comments and shares. That little hit of dopamine is addictive. So these influencers are addicted to looking at their phone every three seconds. And if it don't get a like, it feels like the drug's dropped off. And it is a True. real drug. True. So when you can step away from it and you can say, actually, there's a purpose to it. And you've got a funnel that involves sales and a methodology that drives every post that you make. And it becomes a business idea. It, I'm not saying I don't look at my phone. When, I'm not, when, when I've got something there, but I'm able to at least justify why I'm doing it because I know it's a new client potential on the horizon. It's a balance. It's a it balance is. point of view, not, and I don't, not an addiction. And I don't post all the time. And it's actually really nice to not post on certain days, yeah. whereas I posted every day before. Some days I just don't go anywhere near it. Uh, and I'm, I'm really loving it. I can be creative in lots of other ways rather than just putting it out there and hoping that I entertain people. So it's, it's, so it's a where's, choice. So where's Dave Crane going in the next five years? Next five years? Uh, that would be very interesting. Next two years, I want to be seen as the top speaker trainer for decision makers, working with celebrities, working with VIPs, Region? politicians. Um, I think the US is my main focus, to be honest with you. Um, the, the ticket items of being a speaker are higher. The fees are higher in the US. Something like 70% of, the, of the, all the speaking gigs in the world happen in the US and the fees are much bigger. So I realize that the audience of the land of the free is probably where I will be. But when you're training international people, then they travel a lot as well. So I want to be traveling all around the world to lots of different places, working with, with lots of fascinating decision makers. I also want to be able to make um, speaking available for everybody, whatever their price point is. You're doing something with the uh, United Nations, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm working with the United Nations. We're planning a tour of um, the European Parliament and the United Nations next summer. Um, Vienna, Geneva and uh, Rome. 
planning to do next summer. That'll be very interesting. Would you be working with politicians? Yes. Because okay. um, I think they need training. It's amazing how many ambassadors and diplomats and politicians don't understand stagecraft. They're, they're, they're minted, they're in a job where they make decisions and so on, but they don't know how to control it properly. And if they're able to stand up and be counted and understand the dynamics of working an audience, they become far more effective in what they do. Um, so it, it does definitely interest me to be doing that, but I also realise the importance of teaching everyone to do public speaking. So um, I will have systems in place. I've got them online that people can go Because there's only one of you, right? It, so yeah, it's got to be leveraged. It can't just be me. So the higher prices, like Tony Robbins would be a million dollars a day to get me to teach it to speak. Half a day. That's, yeah, half a day. Million that's right. for three hours. That's I've got so, um, if I was interested or some of the audience are interested in yeah. knowing more, how do they find you? Very simple, just connect with me. If you go to thedavecrane.com, thedavecrane.com, one word, you'll get all my social media, all my WhatsApp, my mobile number, my, my messenger, all my connections are on that, that page. So you can find me immediately. If you want to know more about what it is that I do, go to Dave Crane Global. That's my website okay. and all my different styles and things and are there. The emails will be answered. There's a phone number you said. Oh, we, we'll get back to you regardless. Your Everybody team, gets your team on because I know you're busy. Yeah, yeah. So your team will reply. The team looks after everybody. Okay. So uh, don't ask me when we can chat because I have no idea. I don't look after my diary. I learned that from you. Sure. It's just too much of a headache. Sure. That's not why I do. Somebody else to do it for you. Exactly. Just, just be busy. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, and and doesn't matter what your level. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, anyway, because I think that you know, it changes your life when you're able to speak and be more effective. It's it's like breathing. Everybody should be doing it effectively. This is a bit of a uh, push on Dave because I've known you for a long time, and mm -hmm. uh, I think when people look at you, they they might judge you wrongly. They think, oh, he he knows it too well. He's too. But I've never in my life seen someone who gives so much as you do. Thank you, you know, and I know from the heart when I, I'm. You've been there with family, you walk away. I know you're up till one, two in the morning helping people for nothing because you have a big heart. And um, I just want people to know you are very approachable. It's not just a sales punt. Sure. Um, but my advice is don't spend too much time for free. Yeah. Well, because okay. uh, you're what very, I do. very giving. I've created the, the posts that I make are very effective and they're for free. If you want my time, that costs. Because why would I spend time with you when I could be spending time with my family or my friends? If you want to hire me away from that, it's going to cost you. But there's no reason why you can't have access to the stuff that you need. Amazing. And that's the way that I drive it. And I know you're the same with, with you. Your time is precious. The higher you go up the food chain, the less you have. The older we get. I mean... I'm working progress. You know, absolutely. I'm not the finished article, but I'm, I try every single day to spend my time more effectively. More and, efficiently. And I follow you a lot in that. You're, you're brilliant at it and you're brilliant in business. I love this new thing, this new podcast where you're speaking in this wonderful environment and you, you just stood up again. Um, I, I would urge anybody who is anybody that's got a story to tell to come and see you. I think this is really your area. I, I, I can't be, I can't tell you how privileged I feel to be one of the first people, the first person to get interviewed you by you. Um, and I can see this growing and you end up with the same kind of numbers as, as Joe Rogan. And I really look forward to Thanks, saying man. I was the first one. I love you very much and I want to invite you regularly. Well, I'd love to sit in with people as well sometimes. I would love you to. That'd be cool. I would love you to. Can't wait. Excellent. Thanks, bro. Thank you. Dave Crane. Thanks, man. Mr. Darius Sudi. My fireside chat. <laughs> Take care. Thank, Thank you again.